0: Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fischer, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery through deep-dive interviews with people from various walks of life working toward flourishing after addiction. People researching addiction and recovery, clinicians, spiritual teachers, activists, people with lived experience, and generally people studying how to change and grow or helping others to do so. Why? I believe we have to widen our gaze and look at the psychological, social, artistic, and even spiritual dimensions of the phenomenon if we truly want to understand addiction. And today's guests, I'm sure, would agree. Uh, This episode, I got to speak with Mark Epstein. Mark is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of a great deal of books about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including Advice Not Given, The Trauma of Everyday Life, Thoughts Without a Thinker and going to pieces without falling apart. His newest book, out now, is called The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. He received his undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University. And as we discuss, since then, Mark has been working at this intersection of psychotherapy and Buddhism, thinking deeply about how to make sense of suffering in various forms. Mark and I spoke right before the outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine war. This is something that's obviously heavy on many of our hearts. And I know so many of us have been feeling a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of despair. And Mark and I don't talk much about that because of when we recorded the interview. But I do think the way he thinks about addiction is relevant and helpful for how to cope in these troubled times. He articulates a wise and thoughtful way of talking about addiction right at the outset of our talk. In a nutshell, that from the Buddhist point of view, we're all addicted. The primary addiction is to the self, and the other addictions are the downstream consequence of that. He talks about his own experience of being addicted to thinking, even though he doesn't have experience with a classic addiction. More generally, just addicted to the idea, in his words, that I was supposed to know who I was. We talk at length about his great new book, The Zen of Therapy, which I just loved. I can wholeheartedly endorse it, and one major theme that I thought was so useful to addiction and recovery is what he describes as the blurred lines between psychological, medical, emotional, and spiritual domains of healing. We talk about Mark's own path, working with his own anxieties and insecurities, and how that led him both to psychiatric training at Harvard and his experience in spiritual practice. Also something I didn't know before, despite reading most of his books, is his own experiences going to AA meetings as a non-alcoholic, during his training, because one of his mentors in psychiatric training was a real giant in the field. We talk about his encounters with Richard Alpert, aka Ram Das, Mark's artistic practice as a writer, and much more. One thing I wanted to note is I used the word addict early in the interview I was quoting somebody else who I know he himself identifies as an addict. And then Mark uses that word once or twice. And on a repeat listen, it felt off to me. I discuss this more in my book, but there's a view, which I think is really worthwhile, that that language is stigmatizing. And the preferred language is person first, meaning to say person with addiction rather than addict in a noun form. So I wanted to note that and to note that the words we use do matter. Part of this podcast is paying careful attention to the way we use language around addiction. I didn't edit out that word, but I thought it deserved a comment. And finally, a personal note. At the end of our talk, I asked Mark if he had any parting words of wisdom. And he very kindly said some nice things about my own book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, which came out in late January. I didn't put him up to that, but I will take the opportunity to leave it in And I just wanted to say I'm bowled over by the positive response to the book. And even more to the point, I'm thrilled to be connecting with people like you who have found their way to my podcast and to my newsletter. It's great to get nice reviews and to get the book into people's hands. But in the end, my true measure of success was to make authentic connections with other people and to do something of service about addiction recovery. And it's been such a pleasure to be in contact with so many folks since the book launch I wanted to say thank you so much for those who have invited me to speak to your communities, you are written in to share your thoughts, or who have just left a good rating and review online. All of it really does matter, and I'm grateful for your support. If you're new to this podcast and you'd like to learn more, please head over to my website and sign up for my newsletter, and you'll immediately get my free resource, a guide I made about the many paths to recovery. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. So, without further ado... Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Epstein. So I'm here with the author and psychiatrist, Mark Epstein. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. It's
1: a pleasure. It's nice to be here.
0: i like to ask everyone, and I think this is interesting for you because you haven't written so explicitly about addiction, you must have encountered it how has addiction touched your life or the lives of people in your personal life or maybe your professional life
1: well it depends how you define addiction i would say because you know from the buddhist point of view we're we're all addicted we're addicted to self primarily you know and then all, all the other addictions roll out from there so with that definition of addiction i would say i've been uh, i've been touched by it uh, from before I even knew who I was. And the not knowing who I was was the beginning of uh, being addicted to uh, the idea that I was supposed to know who I was. So I think that set me up for an understanding of all the other, the more classically defined addictions, which have certainly touched uh, many, many people who I've been close to. I remembered in my, uh, my psychiatric residency training Or it must have been in medical school. Yeah, it was in medical school because uh, George Valiant, who was teaching at the Cambridge City Hospital in those days, made uh, all the medical students who were doing a psychiatry rotation go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, And I was already into a Buddhist thing when I went to uh, those AA meetings. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the closest to uh, to Buddhism. The the, the the spirit in these meetings is as close to what I've seen in my uh, Buddhist wanderings as anything I've found. So um, that that touched me deeply, uh, you know, at the beginning of my training.
0: That's fascinating. George Valiant, for people who don't know, wrote The Natural History of Alcoholism and was an AA trustee, I believe, and did mountains and mountains of research on many aspects of addiction. Do you remember anything about either the way he presented it or just your experience in those meetings that spoke to you in that way? I
1: hardly remember anything. I mostly remember the the feeling of vulnerability and willingness to be vulnerable and love that came through in those meetings. I was very touched by George Valiant. I was going to do my residency with him first at at Mass Mental. And then uh, he moved to Cambridge City, and I moved my uh, appointment to Cambridge City. And then I met my future wife and moved to New York. So uh, ended up doing it, uh, you know, at, at New York Hospital. But he was, uh, I was setting him up to be a mentor figure uh, because of that experience. And then, then you know, I went in a different direction. But, but I thought he really understood something that was uh, meaningful to me.
0: Mm. Yeah, so that connects to the first thing you said that you you identify with a universal perspective on addiction. That uh, I've heard a, a Buddhist teacher say: "If you're not a Buddha, you're an addict." And yeah, huh. uh-huh. <laughs> you, you seem in line with that idea. So, could you say more about like what you what you identify with in the experience of addiction?
1: What do I identify with in the experience of addiction? The inability to. Get past whatever the the clinging, whatever the craving, what what whatever the um, the thing in your mind that's obsessing you, whatever it is that's tying you up to the thing in your mind that seems like must have.
0: So let's switch to the book actually, because I think this might be a good way in thinking about AA. I wanted to talk about your most recent book, Zen of Therapy because I I was surprised by how it invoked themes that are really alive right now in addiction and recovery. And in one way, the book to me seems like it's really about synthesis and the blurred lines between the psychological, the emotional and the spiritual. And that's an issue that's really alive right now in recovery communities and in the medical and psychotherapeutic treatment of addiction There are all these questions going back to George Valiant's time and earlier about the appropriateness of integrating spiritual approaches with treatment. There are bad versions of this where a lot of people are consigned to a one-size-fits-all treatment system that is sometimes a form of outright indoctrination. But then there are very beautiful forms of this too where addiction treatment becomes a route into for lack of a better term, to use some of the contemporary buzzwords like wellness and flourishing and all the the things beyond psychopathology. So maybe just to set the stage, I was wondering if you could talk about those blurred lines and how the, the supposed distinctions that you write about are not so distinct between, say, the psychological and the spiritual. Because I think that's something that a lot of folks feel apprehensive about, at least that it's important to get very clear on The beneficial ways that those lines become blurred?
1: Well, what I was determined to do in in this book, and actually in in all the writing that I've ever done, is to try to, as authentically as possible, as honestly as possible, come from a a real place in myself, and try to describe what I have found useful, both as a, uh, a patient... A meditator, a therapist, a psychiatrist—you know—from from from all the different sides of uh, those relationships that have been so important to me. So, when I started out as an anxious, worrying, insecure person, the distinctions between the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual—that meant nothing to me. I wanted. Whatever kind of help I could find, and and I reached out in a lot of different directions, you know, almost at the same time. So I, you know, when I was a, an undergraduate in college, I went to the university health services to see a therapist for reasons that I couldn't really put my finger on, but I knew there, you know, it might be good for me. And why was I as anxious as I was, et cetera? And I met. For three times, I think, with a um, practitioner of uh, short-term psychodynamic uh, psychotherapy, you know, which was popular in those days, and to whom I began to tell my story, and he was very reassuring, and and told me after the third session that my my problem had a name, it wasn't that serious, but uh, it was called the the um, Oedipus complex, and that. Uh, uh, once I knew that that, uh, that that should help, and I was sort of perplexed, having not uh, studied a lot of psychoanalysis at that point. But I was happy that he had identified what the problem was. But you know, but it didn't help me that much. And uh, shortly thereafter, I met my first meditation teachers, mindfulness uh, instructors, you know, Vipassana teachers, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Hornfield, Sharon Salzberg. Those people. And they were like, "Why are you trying to figure out the source of your of your uh, anxieties so much? You know why don't you just like learn how to sit with yourself and feel what's going on?" And they began to give me meditation instruction so that that was that seemed more useful at first because it was something practical that I you know, but was that a psychological thing or was that a spiritual thing? was that an emotional thing? You know it was all of those. and so I went deep into. The meditation for a while, but still, it wasn't fixing all the problems that needed fixing. You know, I was I was still still conscious of you know, uh, be nice to have someone to talk to who could help me with like some of my uh, more intimate issues. Uh, so I found a Gestalt therapist who was didn't think i was crazy for being interested in the meditation but was willing to sit and talk with me and uh, not hide behind the blank screen of the psychoanalyst but actually engage with me and he was able to show me you know various ways that i was perpetuating my own insecurity you know the way Uh, The way I held myself back, the way I sat in the chair, the way I only partially said what I wanted to say or asked for what I wanted to ask for. So that was very helpful psychotherapy, but it seemed quite congruent with everything I was learning in the meditation. And then I spent time with Richard Alpert. Uh, you know, who had become Ramdas by that point, who w- was a little bit Buddhist but more Hindu and not afraid to talk about God or the soul or and uh, to teach uh, spiritual practices that were more devotional. So what was that how was that helping me? you, you know, so all of this to say that from my own early experience, the divisions, between the spiritual, the psychological, and the emotional were always blurred. And when I began to do a real training to become a psychiatrist, going to medical school and working with people like George Valiant and working in mental hospitals and taking care of patients, I felt like I needed to bring all of those tools that had helped me to deploy them across the board as as seemed appropriate for a given person. So everyone needed something different, you know, but, uh, but I had a lot to choose from. So that's, I think, in this latest book, what I was trying to show, you know, like what's it really like to be a therapist these days? And how do you choose what it is that you say or do, or, you know, what, and what is actually helpful to somebody?
0: Can I ask about that? Because... I feel some identification with your younger self, as I understand it, that earlier in your career, you felt cautious about bringing Buddhism in too explicitly and wanted more the Buddhism to do its work on you. And then you manifest that in some unspoken way. And then it seems as if there was some sort of evolution or tension in terms of how explicitly brought in ideas about meditation or notions of self or inner peace. And I think that's relevant because, you know, sometimes people from the practitioner side will wonder about how much to bring in. Sometimes I worry, I don't want to be a stealth missionary or trying to bring people along into my worldview. And I think sometimes people on the patient side have that worry that it's being done to them. So is that right? That you, you had a sort of evolution where you became more comfortable?
1: Well, I think, I think as a narrative, For that has come through my various books. It's one narrative that is somewhat true. I think in in actuality, from the beginning, if I felt that there was receptivity on the part of a patient to anything spiritual, that I was right there with that and I could talk that language to them. So... Some people came to me explicitly because they knew I was interested in this stuff and they wanted a therapist who wouldn't think that they were crazy for being interested in it, also. And so those people I could talk to freely about everything. And some people came to me because they wanted a therapist who could guide them in a spiritual direction, you know, without laying some kind of cult thing on them. So those people I would talk to freely as well. I I think always. I was very reluctant to go beyond the the boundary of what was going to be useful for the patient. So I never wanted to be proselytizing about mindfulness or about Vipassana or about Buddhism or about meditation or the same way I wouldn't be selling them vitamins or something, you know. And so that, that stayed consistent all the way through. But it, you know, at the beginning, this is 35, 40 years ago, meditation it was a little bit in the world, but it was mindfulness hasn't conquered the mental health system yet. You know, it was still a pretty esoteric thing. Now, it's much more part of the vocabulary that a lot of people who are coming to therapy are are using. So it's easier now to mix the conversation up a little bit more. And I have gotten freer about it.
0: Let's talk about mindfulness then, because I love this quote you have. And I I think this is also a really strong theme in Advice Not Given, the book prior to this most recent one. But you you said, With the recent popularity of mindfulness and the proliferation of apps and blogs and podcasts about it, people tend to look at it as a kind of mental gymnastics. Good for one's health, beneficial of practice on a regular basis. This is not necessarily mistaken but it can make meditation feel like just another thing one is doing wrong. And you know I feel that very strongly <laughs> in myself sometimes. I, I see it very strongly in my patients, especially in the world of addiction and recovery, because meditation is explicitly called out in one of the steps of the 12-step program. Many people have this idea that this is a necessary component of their recovery, or at the very least something I should be doing if I wanted to be feeling better. And Mark, I even asked, I have one friend who's a big fan of yours, like me. And I asked, what would you like to ask Mark? And he, he said, ask him how often he sits, which I think is such an interesting question because it, it speaks to this idea that there's a right amount or maybe an ideal one should be living up to. So can you talk about that? Do you want to ask me how, how much I sit? It, absolutely. But I also know mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. So the real question is, how do you?
1: No, it matters a lot. It matters a lot. When I'm working, I'm sitting like eight to ten hours a day, because being a psychotherapist is is all about sitting. You know, like who are we to say that that meditation means only sitting with your own mind? You know, like what what are we doing? As, you know this. You know what are we doing as therapists? you know, when we're sitting, not just with our own mind, but also with another person's mind. And how are we paying attention when we are being therapists? Is that any different from how we're paying attention when we're meditating? I don't think so. I think it's the same. I've had this discussion, you know, with Joseph Goldstein and various meditation teachers. Everyone doesn't agree with me.
0: Well, the Zen people, I think, would probably agree with you more in the whole chop wood, carry water sort of mindset.
1: I don't know I don't know I mean people who are people people whose business is selling meditation you know as a you know like you must do it for 20 minutes twice a day uh, or for an hour a day or or whatever I had a conversation this morning with someone who was feeling guilty that maybe they they were only meditating 20 minutes once a day and you know like was it if they didn't do it twice a day were they then not getting the full benefit and i said you know i think that's the way it was uh, taught for the american market you know it was packaged that way for the american market the 20 minutes twice a day and the point is to i mean meditation is practice what is it practiced for? You know, it's practice for life. So the 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 point eventually is to be able to integrate whatever it is that we're learning from meditation, which is an open question. You know, what what is that really? Are we learning uh, how to watch our breaths? Are we learning how to be more in our bodies? You know, is that the point? Like when you're taking a walk to be able to feel the bottom of your feet, is that the is that the you know what what the lesson is of meditation, or are we learning how to be with ourselves and uh, perhaps in a in a different way or with another person, you know, with our the people we're intimate with? I mean, it's we we could talk about it for a while. So my individual practice of meditation is still really important to me and uh, and I do it whenever time enough opens up in my day or in my night where I can turn to it and and I always find it a refuge but I don't I don't get up in the morning anymore and first thing go and and sit you know and since we had children I've never been able to meditate first thing in the morning like I did in my 20s when my kids were little I always found That after they went to sleep at night, there was a nice bit of time when the house got very got very still. And in my mind, I might want to rush to eat dinner or look at the newspaper or talk to my wife or watch TV or, you know. But that that was a good time to stop and just feel the stillness, you know, in the in the household. And I would sometimes meditate. I I found that that was a good reliable time.
0: What about your advice for people who are not necessarily just integrating meditation into their life, but integrating a sense of right effort into their meditation practice? I've seen so many people who have taken on this notion that meditation is a good thing for me, or even taken on an aspiration, like I want meditation to be a regular practice, and then struggle and then feel so much shame about it. So, beyond just the logistics, what yeah, what's your advice for people like that?
1: Well, it's so sad to turn meditation into something to feel shame about. So meditation is about doing nothing that's what i that's what I say to people like that. Meditation is about doing nothing. right effort is about teaching yourself that it's okay to do nothing. That, that what are we aspiring to in meditation people think oh i should be able to get rid of my thoughts you know that meditation means having an empty mind but the thinking is what the mind does you know you are never going to get rid of your thoughts you know even you go and meditate for uh, for a month you know on end you're going to see you are still thinking there are still going to be thoughts so so meditation is much more about not being seduced by your thoughts it's about not completely identifying with the thoughts, you know. And that gets to your initial question about addiction. What is it that we're addicted to? You know, a lot of us are addicted to our thoughts. So, so what, what what does meditation do to counter that? It it shows you, it, it shows you that you don't have to be totally identified with your thoughts. That was the idea behind the, you know, the first book that I ever wrote was called Thoughts Without a Thinker, which was, you know, which I, a phrase I stole from a British psychoanalyst named named, named uh, Wilfred Bion, but, but uh, a very Buddhist idea, you know. So the less that you are trying to do in meditation, the more I believe you're practicing right effort. That right, as long as you're not like, Lying down and going to sleep, unless what you really need is a nap. You know, if you can stay awake and stay relatively present with whatever is happening in your experience, that's called meditation.
0: That's great. I want to ask you about Thoughts Without a Thinker a little later, but it's too good of a segue to resist. You also write about thinking and our relationship to thinking in the Zen of Therapy. So there's a vignette early on where you you talk about a patient and you're trying to impress on her this notion that's been really central to your own practice, that it's not what she is thinking that matters. It is how she relates to her thoughts that will make all the difference. And you, you say this is a supremely important phrase. You find yourself repeating it in your sessions and your writings and your talks, but you also are scribbling it in the back of your own inspirational books. So I get the sense that it's something that is one of these simple but not easy things that you yourself have really practiced with. And I have that sense as well, both as a personal practitioner and also in psychotherapy practice. So, how do you help people with that? How is it, why is it so hard <laughs> to make that pivot of not trying to control the thinking, but how we relate to our thinking?
1: Well, this idea that we have any choice at all about how we relate to anything is, I think, one of the, it's one of the pillars that Buddhist psychology rests on. And I know for me, the reason I emphasized it in that, in that vignette that you're talking about is that um, every time I heard Joseph Goldstein, you know, who's been very important to me as a meditation teacher, every time I heard him give a Dharma talk, where he would say something like that. It's not what you're experiencing that matters. It's how you relate to it. Every time I would hear him say that, it would strike me like, oh yeah, that's the... that's the fundamental thing that he's been teaching me you know and it would always be like oh i never heard him say that before and then i would look at my little notebooks where i that i would smuggle into my meditation retreats where you're not supposed to read or write but i would take notes you know in case i needed inspiration later on for my own books and i would see i had written some version of that already you know 10 years ago five years ago it's, not, it's So it's not just what you're, I quoted it in the book as it's not what she was thinking that mattered, but how she relates to her thoughts. But it extends beyond that. It's not what you're experiencing that matters. It's how you relate to it. So meditation, and to some degree, psychotherapy also is built on this very weird capacity that we have as human beings to be both subject and object of our own experience so we're thinking but we're also capable of seeing ourselves thinking or seeing the thoughts you, you know the reflective capacity of awareness you know that in in psychoanalysis they talk about making a therapeutic split in the ego so that uh, you know you're free associating but you're also a witness to the free association and in meditation, we're doing sort of the same thing. Like there's the, the, uh, the field of thoughts or the field of physical sensations. And we are sitting there. We, we are those thoughts. And or we are those feelings. We are those physical sensations, but we are also the observing consciousness of them. So that's a really weird thing that we can be both subject and object. So, because of that, we have some degree of choice in terms of how we relate to our experience. Our experience is unfolding. We want to control as much as we can control. We can control a good deal of things, but not everything. So that which we can't control, we can change how we, it can offend us. We can be upset with it, or we can be, okay, I guess this is just it like i I guess this is you know so that the relational capacity of the mind is something that both meditation and psychotherapy have some influence over
0: Mm -hmm. yeah beautifully said i want to get back to thoughts without a thinker too because before i forget about it that you said that a goal from the start of your writing career was to come from a real place in yourself i was wondering why why did you start writing because thoughts without a thinker was around the mid-90s You'd been a practicing psychotherapist for a little while. Where did the impulse to write come from? And why, why do you keep on coming back to it?
1: Why do I keep on doing it? <laughs> Thoughts of that, I think it was published in 95, which meant I was writing it in like 93 or so. But the whole decade before, I was writing these little articles, mostly published in the uh, Journal of Transpersonal Psychology, which was an esoteric California journal. And a couple, I published one article in um, uh, the psychoanalytic, the uh, uh, International Journal of Psychoanalysis, International Review of Psychoanalysis, which um, was a big aspiration of mine. That was the journal that, you know, Freud and all the original psychoanalysts um, published in. So I never thought of myself as a writer. I started writing because uh, when I moved to New York, I moved in with my wife, who was a sculptor. And in my mind, we were in all of our free time, we were just going to be together all the time because we were newly in love. And that's all I really wanted. But uh, very soon after I moved in, she was like, uh, Mark, I'm going to my studio now because she was making art. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? So I I spread out all the um, papers that I were that I was all my Buddhist stuff and my psychoanalytic journals that I was reading on the dining room table, and uh, that was the beginning of my writing time. So I decided I wrote a whole bunch of articles in those, in those uh, probably seven, eight, nine, ten years, where I was beginning to try to explain for myself what the similarities were between the Buddhist psychology and the um, uh, Western psychodynamic psychology. So um, I I wrote a bunch of things about uh, narcissism and uh, ego and egolessness and emptiness and uh, the psychiatric complications of meditation and so on. A lot of those articles got compiled in a book that came out Uh, later called psychotherapy without the self but those are those are a lot of my early writings and then I discovered those articles were all like quite academic you know they were I was reading the psychoanalytic journals and that was influencing the way I was you know the way I thought writing was then about two-thirds of the way through thoughts without a thinker I realized that if I wrote from a more personal place that my own case example, instead of writing about my patients, which various people had been already urging me to do, I realized I could make myself the major case example. And so I I began to write about my own experience in meditation, on retreat, and in therapy. And I felt like that really enlivened Thoughts Without a Thinker and taught me something very important about writing, which was if I could capture as, as close to the truth as I could find of my own personal experience, it, it jumped off the page much in a much more, you know, less dead, more alive way. And so I've kind of kept to that. And until this last book, I finally let myself really write about the patients. I think I have been doing this long enough that... Um, it felt safe to do that, you know, get it, getting their permission and so on.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's sometimes amendments, like, put in how I look like Antonio Banderas.
1: <laughs> yes. That's one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that.
0: <laughs> oh, it was great. It's, uh, the, um, it, it's just a nice... I, I, I won't even explain it for the audience. You just have to read the book, but it's a beautiful little parallelism at the start and the end of the essay. I mean, the book is so... I mean there's a lot of depth and a lot of wisdom there but it's also just really pleasant and fun in its essayisticness it has a sort of like zippy pace to it that I I really appreciate and I think you said it was pointillist in the way that like the the individual cases might seem isolated but then come together in just a very thoughtful and useful way so I, I really I really liked it and let me jump ahead then because we're talking about the the way it all comes together in the zen of therapy oh yeah sure go ahead
1: i think what i was after in in that in that point list or sometimes i say it was like a kaleidoscopic thing i think what i was after was first of all to show the sort of ordinariness of what therapy is like so that it's, it's not always like digging down to the root cause of this is what happened to you when you were four and now i've discovered it and now i feel better but that it's really talking about often with people just what are the ordinary things that are going on in their in their day, but that by concentrating on just those most ordinary things, sometimes greater truths can be revealed. So that was one thing in the back of my mind. But the other thing was that I was really trying to show what it's like from the therapist's point of view, so that the all the patient cases, they do don't—they were picked almost randomly and, and you don't really follow one patient. A couple of people show up more than once, but you don't really follow a given case in the classic way that therapists have written before. You're more following m- my inside thoughts, you know, throughout a year's worth of therapy. So this is how I'm approaching this person. This is how I'm approaching that person. But the, the, the through line is really me. Trying to reflect upon what it is to be a therapist in this way, and that, thats what I meant when I was saying, you know, trying to to hew as closely as possible to my own experience in the writing. That somehow that that makes it, you know, m- most alive.
0: I loved it as a therapist because it's nice to look behind the curtain. And a, th- a thing that I'm constantly experiencing and reading accounts like this or talking to experienced clinicians is. Uh, just sort of loosening up and having it be more ordinary and not mm-hmm. stop trying to do a thing and instead focus more on being Yeah, you know, especially mm-hmm. as physicians i think we get very focused on performing a procedure a
1: task yeah procedure yeah
0: and um to make it less procedural and to have that sort of you didn't use the phrase unconditional positive regard but there was something in that the placebo effect of kindness that to me seemed like one of the the three lines too is just zeroing in on the very straightforward and basic yet profound nature of human kindness and showing up completely for someone else
1: but we all have such a need for that and i wonder how much that figures into a discussion of addiction how much of the the search of the addict is for simple kindness you know or for something that approximates an experience, a physical experience that, uh, that approximates that kind of love.
0: And models it internally too. It's, you know The notion about inner peace, I thought, was especially relevant to this aspect of addiction when people are so dominated by shame, or at least an oppositional stance toward the parts of themselves that they find unacceptable and also the super ego plays a a sort of starring role in this book as well. But you you write at the beginning about this notion of inner peace and how the Dalai Lama wrote a foreword for one of your books and invoked this notion of inner peace. You were worried that it was a sort of spa treatment. You kind of shied away from this notion of inner peace and then came around to a notion of inner peace, at least in the way the Dalai Lama was referring to it as more about nonviolence than relaxation. It was less procedural. It was less about this instrumental or sort of manualized approach to meditation or mindfulness or Buddhist wisdom and, and more about something that seems more relational. Is that right? I mean, that that seems like it's a really important one for addiction as well.
1: I'm interested in how that might apply to addiction. I think I came around to thinking of it as how important it was to confront one's own tendency toward violence, you know, one's own tendency toward inner violence and uh, relational violence, You, you know, and that none of us are free of those tendencies. However, placid or peaceful or equanimous we try to seem, the uh, just below the surface, if not uh, if not uh, quite obvious on the surface, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of aggression that's brewing. And uh, if we're not willing to look at that and work with that, then uh, uh, what could we possibly mean by inner peace? You know how could how could inner how could inner peace be achievable?
0: Right. It's specifically one specific example I thought of that sort of everyday addiction we were talking about in the beginning is this patient you called Jean, who incidentally, but maybe not, is under surveillance for writing an opioid prescription and then winds up, she's a physician and then winds up under this oppressive monitoring regime, which results in her doing this, I think, quite familiar escape of binging TV. And to me, is it seems like a violent rebellion. It's in your section of the book on anger. It's sort of like the the angry refusal to meet the challenges of life and instead stay up late watching TV. I think there's some there's some like trendy nickname for it. The um, what is it? Oh, I'm blanking on it now. It's a it's a supposedly a Chinese expression. It's like angry procrastination. Or have you heard this? No, no, I'm interested. It's, I should look it up, but um, it's a, a revenge procrastination. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say it in Chinese? In the act of procrastination, you're sort of taking yeah. revenge against yourself or yeah. against your life circumstances. Yeah. And that yeah. strikes me as addictive. You didn't use the term addictive, but it strikes me as an addictive pattern mm-hmm. and also is related to violence and anger. What do you think about that? Is that, is that close to it?
1: Oh, I think that's exactly it. Yes, that, that's exactly what she was doing. And I said something to her, it's in the vignette, I said something to her quite spontaneously about Jesus in that session, that she she had, uh, you know, she was being, I thought and she thought, unjustly punished for, in good faith, writing this opioid prescription for a, a patient who had moved away. So it became like an interstate thing, I think. And the feds came down on her and she had to pay a, a big fine and uh, have her her medical notes. You know, someone came in to make sure she was writing them properly. She, it, so she They tried to make an example of her. And uh, naturally enough, she was like, you know, angry, not just with them, but with herself and feeling like a failure. And, you know, all the revenge, procrastination, all of that going on. But somehow I managed to, you know, Jesus came up and I had this sense that she was taking on the suffering of many other people, many other perhaps opioid prescription writers, or maybe it was beyond that. And that she was going to actually survive her punishment and uh, not be destroyed by it. And that, that anyway, I was I. I surprised her and that goes back to a question you asked me a little while ago about, you know, how do you, how do you undermine these tendencies, you know, and one of the things we can do as uh, therapists is surprise the, uh, the person that we're, that we're talking to so that they start to think about their situation differently. And she actually wrote if you give me a minute I might be able to dig into my phone and find for you. She wrote me a, a really nice email about what working uh, uh, you know sort of standing back and looking at what the effect of those sessions had been on her and uh it's a, it's maybe a little too a little too much praise but but she phrased it really well. I'll look for it. Let me see if I can find it.
0: I think I have it. So Jean sent you an email that read in part as follows. The one thing I remember from the session in which we talked about Jesus that stuck with me is when you said you are Jesus. That truly dislodged my identification with shame and humiliation. As you point out, I really didn't get it, but I trust you and just let it dislodge, disoriented me to self and freed me up. Is that what you meant?
1: Well, here, that was one that she wrote. Then there's a second one that came not that long ago when we were talking about it where she said, Dear Dr. Epstein, when my sister asked, what's it like to work with Mark Epstein? I said, I never know how a session will go, but I can rely on having an experience of shift. There will be a moment, a suspension of conversation and time in which I become disoriented to myself. Lose track of whatever felt pressingly painful and start down a new line of travel. Like a tectonic collision opens cracks in the Earth's crust, a discontinuity, sometimes jolting, makes room for light where I had seen only opacity. A quake, a little shivering shock has blown open the dulling petrification of habit. My eyes, have, having adapted to the dark, I must take time to resee the newly lit scape, find landmarks, topographic clues, crop circles that may have appeared. It is a soundless juncture followed by a rush of warming relief. A softening, feelings of gratitude, wonder at the power of presence. You were there to hold my bruised heart while my mind found new footing. What's it like to work with Mark Epstein? It's labor and it's love. I was I was very happy to get that email.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Say more about that though. What What do you take from that email? Do you Do you recognize things there that you weren't as aware of, or were you surprised by anything in it?
1: Oh, I was surprised by all of it. No, when I'm what I tried to show in the book. And what I think is true about the way that I am as a therapist is I'm just very conversational as a therapist. I'm just like, I'll talk about whatever, <laughs> you, you know, and if I sense that someone is stuck in some particular place, like they're thinking some sort of shameful thing that isn't, doesn't seem accurate you know or some angry thing whatever if it feels like it maybe i'll be heard i'll point out what seems like a a misunderstanding you know about whatever is going on and so and that's about the limit of who, of how i see myself as a therapist so for for her to put that kind of language on it you know a tectonic shift and whatever you, you know which may just be her hyperbole but For those conversations to have that kind of impact is incredibly uh, affirming for me as a therapist.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. I'm curious also about what's coming up for you now and what's next. Do you have a sense of what your next focus will be? Anything you're particularly interested in writing about or anything that is really sticking with you because of COVID or otherwise? no
1: the bulk the bulk of my um of my energy goes into the day-to-day work of being a psychotherapist so having finished having finished the book i have a little more time for the for the people that i'm committed to and usually with the writing i have to wait for you know some kind of inspiration for whatever the next thing might be and uh, i think a lot of a lot of writers go through this, like thinking that, oh, this might be like, you, you know, how did I ever write that thing? You know, like, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I don't know if that, I don't know if I'll ever uh, write anything else, but, uh, I've thought that
0: before. So we'll just, mm-hmm. we'll just have to say. That's good to hear because you're not, you're not John Grisham, but you're prolific. And mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a, and I think that's a good thing. And you've done a tremendous service through a lot of your writing. So in my mind, I was wondering if you had some plan or you were you're were bubbling over with so much inspiration that you just had to get back. You just
1: can't stop. No.
0: <laughs> you hand in the drafts for the book and then you immediately turn to the next one.
1: No, this book got started because I didn't know what I was going to write about next, but I still had this writing time that I had set aside. So I decided, you know, not knowing that it would be a book at all, but just in order to have something to do with the time, I decided, oh, let me try to write about one session a week, You know, just like get it down, like I don't usually do. So I, I would pick one session where it seemed like, oh, maybe something interesting happened here. And I, and I would make rough notes right when the session ended. And then in the time I had set aside for writing during the week, I would try to write it up in as coherent a fashion as I could. And uh, I did that for a year without knowing if it could be part of a book or not, but just just as an exercise. And then it was only after a year that I looked at any of it and uh, showed it to my editor. And then started to think, oh, it, it, maybe there is the nucleus of something here. And how could this really be a book, you know? So
0: that's great. I love that you have a dedicated writing time.
1: Yeah, I've I, I've always written one day a week. Hmm. All those books.
0: I've talked on this podcast with people who are in recovery or people who have a different angle on writing about their life, about the therapeutic process of creation, and almost giving yourself that assignment for stepping into a relationship with yourself. It's really nice to hear that even now, you still approach it with that mindset, at least in this most recent project.
1: Yeah, well, in a way, writing is like, I see writing the way I was describing meditation before. That uh, that you almost have to uh, think about it as doing nothing, because many times with the writing, it, you know, I would just sit there for for hours with uh, very little happening, and then maybe in the last half hour, I would force myself to uh, to actually to actually say something, like, and that's sort of the trick for writing is is just you know say it in as. Uh, a lousy way as you possibly can, but just to get get a first sentence down on the page, and you can always go back and change the first sentence. You know? Right. But there would there would be days when very little would happen.
0: Mark, this has been really lovely. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about this great book. We have to stop in a minute, but do you have any final words, or maybe a call to the audience, or anything else that has come to mind about addiction recovery that you wanted to share?
1: Well, I would just say, you know, I was very moved by reading your book and the way that you were able to tell your own story without hiding any of the you know, more, more difficult uh, aspects of it. And I think that, you know, as a psychiatrist who's willing to reveal his or her own struggles that you're doing a real service for, uh, you know, for humanity. So I wanted a chance to be able to talk about that and maybe to urge other, you know, I think you you and I both are, are stretching the boundaries of what uh, conventionally therapists have allowed themselves to write about. And uh, I think the, the more that therapists can reveal their own humanity the um the easier it is for uh, for the for the rest of people to uh feel better about their own
0: thank you i'm touched i mean it, it means the world to me and i think it's an interesting technical question about mm-hmm. self-disclosure mm-hmm. i had a piece about that in my book but it turned out to be a little too much inside baseball <laughs> so, mm-hmm. okay, but there there's a Fascinating development in the early 20th century where there were these pre-Freudian psychotherapy groups like the Emanuel Clinic that was almost exclusively focused on addiction. And they were very open with self-disclosure. And a lot of those therapists had experience with addiction. And there's a, a proud, almost parallel tradition among addiction counselors who disclose a lot of themselves and it certainly feels odd coming out of a mainstream medical tradition at Columbia which where we got a lot of very good psychoanalytic training but yeah any of my supervisors there barring a few of the fun ones probably would have said don't don't do it i'm still thinking through how much of buddhism and how much of my own personal experience to bring into a therapy session I think it's imperative to err on the precautionary side for me at my stage in the career to to err on the precautionary side and only be sure that I'm doing what's useful. And I also have this book out. (laughs) So (laughs) that's almost like a totally different route of learning. But maybe I'll talk to you offline one day about what it's like to be a therapist who also has a bunch of books swimming around and how people form an opinion of you and a vision of you outside of your work in the therapy room?
1: The book is definitely useful. Your book is definitely useful. So feel good about that. And I always tell people, you know, like when they're, if they're in the room or on the screen talking to me, that uh, I'm not the book, you know, and now you have to get to know the real me, you know, as much as that's
0: possible, if I'm going to be the therapist. That's a good four words. I'm going to write it down. Not the book. Yeah,
1: you're not the book. Very
0: nice. Yeah. Mark, it's been a real honor and pleasure. I think very useful to folks in addiction and recovery. And I really loved your most recent book and all your books. So thank you so much for your work. It's been a real influence and motivation and inspiration. So I really appreciate the chance to talk to you.
1: Great. Well, thank you for your time. Great to be with
0: you. That's my interview with Mark Epstein. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can tell that Mark is a writer I've long admired, so it's great to get his thoughts about addiction. The interview went to some interesting places I never anticipated: revenge bedtime procrastination, the Emanuel Clinic and pre-Freudian psychotherapy, George Valiant, and the spirit of 12-step groups that Mark experienced as an outsider. I'll put links to all of those specific topics in the show notes. Otherwise, I just love how Mark talked about his own early experiences working with his own anxiety, how at first he wanted to figure out the source through deep inquiry, which was not entirely helpful. Then meditation teachers taught him how to sit with the anxiety. And yet, once he had a grounding in meditation practice, it was also useful for him to return to talk therapy because meditation by itself was not a cure-all. I really love the way that he talks about meditation as not just mental gymnastics about how it's much more about not being seduced by your thoughts. It's about not completely identifying with the thoughts in the way that a lot of us are addicted to our thoughts. And especially, I'm going to be meditating on this phrase, which I think is so useful. It's not what you are experiencing that matters. It's how you relate to it. So I'll leave it there for this week. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics we've discussed, head over to my website and check out the show notes. Sign up for my newsletter and send me an email to let me know what you think. I love hearing from you about what's interesting and useful, so don't hesitate to drop a line. Also, I'd really be grateful if you'd help me get the word out about this podcast. One great way is just send the episode to one other person you think would benefit, and then another is head over to Apple Podcasts or to your favorite podcast player and leave me a rating and review. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice the content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, this podcast is just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and my positions on my website, which I will keep updated going forward.